You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. We typically stand for the reading of God's Word, but I'm going to work through the passage, read through the passage as we are going through the sermon this morning, just so we can have some freshness for us as we're diving into different sections of it. So uh, I'm not going to have a stand for the reading of God's this morning, but I do want to pray for us so that the Lord would soften our hearts to receive His Word this morning. So pray with me, and then we'll dive in, all right? Uh, Father, we do come to You. Um, we know that we are people that are very distracted in our day-to-day lives. We have multiple things that are grabbing, grasping for our attention. And so, Father, we come to you this morning, the God that can change our hearts, that can soften our hearts, and ask that you would do that for us this morning, that as we sit under your word, that you would come and that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would, you would be true to your word, that your, your scriptures really are alive and active and they can, they can cut and pierce our own souls. We ask that. We need that this morning. And so, Lord, give us attentiveness. Pray that you give us a sensitivity. Pray that you give us an honesty, that we would take your word, examine our own life, and, Lord, that we would respond as we need. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our staff team in the last six months has been working through some team development working on our culture and we've been working through a book called the five dysfunctions of a team and they have multiple exercises in there that we've done we did one recently just two weeks ago called the team effectiveness exercise and i have a little quote that helps you understand what you do in this exercise so lencioni says that you identify the single most important contribution that each of your peers makes to the team as well as the one area they must either improve upon or eliminate for the good of the team. And we did this literally two weeks ago. We have six people that are in this room. We're sitting in a circle. We go one by one and tell them the one thing that they contribute and the one thing they need to improve upon or eliminate. And I'm the very last one that goes that gets this feedback from the rest of our team. And we have a very kind staff team. We really enjoy working with each other and being around each other. But we were trying to really step in with honesty to the things that we were sharing with one another. And so after they softened me up with some nice, nice things, here's the critique I got, the very first one. Josh, one thing you need to eliminate is how you start side conversations in the middle of staff meetings. <laughs> Whoops. As they shared this, uh, as this person shared this, the rest of the team started snickering in the room because they all knew it was true. <laughs> so here's what, I, what was going on. Um, I have this tendency that I will, like these random thoughts or jokes will like pop up into my head and I would lean over to the person that's sitting next to me and I would share that joke in the middle of someone talking and sharing in our staff meeting or I would have an idea that came up with something in my ministry or somebody else's ministry and I had to share it in that moment and so I would lean over to the person and I would share in the moment. And so um, it's funny that they went straight for the heart and they went to something I need to eliminate, not just something I need to prove on. So um, I was, I was busted, right? I was busted in this. And so if you had an anger translator that was over our heads, if you watch any comedy, you know the anger translator. If the anger translator was saying over this person's shoulder, this is what they would have said. Josh, you big fat jerk, you're a terrible listener, right? 
Like, you're horrible. Like, you're a bad listener. As we are diving back into our Matthew series this morning, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 13. Um, it's a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. People are starting to develop very strong opinions and stances on who Jesus is and who He claims to be. So you have people like the, the poverty, the, the people that would be considered kind of in the, the poverty range, the, those who are poor in spirit. You have the sinners that are coming, and they're flocking to Jesus. They're flocking to Him because He... He's respectful towards them. He hangs out with them. And he even forgives them of things that they've done in their past. So these people are flocking to them. There's a hunger that is in these people's lives for Jesus. But then you have people like the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are growing strongly opposed to Jesus. I mean, they're, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, they are plotting, they are scheming, they are thinking through ways that they can literally kill, destroy, eliminate Jesus from the face of the earth. And then you have, some, you have the crowds who are somewhere in between. They're questioning Jesus. They're skeptical of Jesus. You, his family would even fall into this range. At the end of Matthew chapter 12, we see Jesus' family that comes to meet him in the home. And as they come and meet him in the home, they try to ask for him to come out so that they, they can rebuke him for some of the things that he's been saying to the public. So you have all these different stances and opinions on who Jesus is and who he claims to be. So the question is, like, how does Jesus respond to this? How is, he, how is he dealing with these different stances and opinions that people hold of himself? Well, in Matthew chapter 13, we get an idea of how he does that. He starts to teach them, the crowds, through stories. Matthew 13 is... A, a chapter that's full of parables. There are seven different parables that are in this chapter. And parables are stories that are taken from real life that communicate a moral or a lesson. And so as, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the first parable in Matthew 13. And as we look at this parable of the sower, I think what you're going to see is that there is a theme about listening or hearing. You hear the word listen or hear come up in this particular passage that we're looking at this morning over 15 times. Anytime you see a constant repetition of a word, you have to pay attention. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to just wrestle with this theme of hearing that we find in the parable of the sower. So here's how we're going to do it. I want us to look where this passage breaks down in three different parts. So you have the first part, which is the literal parable of Jesus. Jesus is sharing this story with the crowds. And then the second movement that you have is Jesus has a side conversation with his disciples. He doesn't get, he doesn't get uh, critiqued for this um, like I did, but he has this little side conversation with his disciples where he's working through uh, just the reason why he uses parables in his ministry. And then you have the, the very last segment where he explains the parable to his disciples. So what I want to do is I just want to camp out a little bit in the first two and then spend a lot of time in the explanation of the, these parables. We'll, look, we'll have some closing application and then uh, we'll get out of here for lunch because I know everybody's tummies are hungry even though you had the feast. So here's what I want to do. I want to read Matthew 1 through 9. We'll work through the parable real quick. I have a couple of comments that I want to make and then uh, we'll keep working through this. So turn with me, Matthew 13, 1 through 9. Matthew 1 says this, On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, and while the, while the whole crowd stood 
on the shore. So here's the scene. Here's what's going on here, okay? So Jesus is in Galilee, and he's likely at Peter's house. And there's crowds that have come and met him at the house that he's been teaching. And here's his day so far. So he's put up with the nonsense of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He's preached to the crowds already, and then he's put up with family drama, the same drama that I was talking about at the end of Matthew chapter 12. And so Jesus literally gets out of the house. He leaves the house to go to the Sea of Galilee. If I'm being honest, I probably would do the same thing after that day. Amen? Like family drama, preaching, and then dealing with people's questions and their bantering. And I'm probably getting out and trying to get away for a little bit. And that's what Jesus does. But the large crowds flock to him, and much different than me, he doesn't show up with frustration or irritability towards them. Instead, he gets his disciples, they get on a boat, they go a little bit out into the sea in order for him to address the crowds. And then he starts sharing the parable with them. Verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears Listen. So here, here's what's probably going on in the crowd as they're hearing this parable. First, um, Jesus is speaking in a very similar way to how people could hear and understand and relate to Jesus. It's a very heavy agricultural people. They're likely farmers themselves. They go out and they work the land. So Jesus is literally speaking the language of the crowds in order for him to relate. But there's likely three things as he's sharing this parable with the crowds that stood out to them. The first one is the sower or the farmer. He's going out and he's casting seed. Some would say very carelessly. I would like to say generously. He goes and spreads it out on the hard soil. He spreads it out on the rocky soil. He spreads it out on the thorny soil and even the good soil. And if you are these crowds, the people that work the fields, the people that are in agriculture, you think this guy is careless. He's not wise. He's not discerning. If it's you and me, we're likely going and just dropping that whole pot on the good soil, right? We want the best result for our return, right? We, so we're, going, we're throwing out all the seed into the good soil, but we're not letting it touch the other places, but I think what Jesus is communicating is the very nature, the core of who our God is. He is a generous, generous God who wants everyone to hear the good news of Jesus, to give their life and to receive this good news and be brought into his family, even to the extent where he's willing to scatter the seed in the places where he knows there's going to be no return. But that's not where the people's minds and hearts are probably at. They're probably just thinking this guy is a terrible farmer. The second thing is the crazy fruit that's produced from the good soil. So Jesus says that it's 30 to 60 to 100 times more. That is insane return. I don't care what field that you're in in terms of business. Anytime that you can get 30 to 60 to 100 times a profit from what you invested in something, your ears perk up, don't they? And so these people, amen, I hear that. <laughs> so like Jesus is speaking this, these farmers, their ears perk up because they're thinking, man, what are the skills of this farmer? 
What are the, the ideas that he has? What is he doing right that I can do in order to get this same type of result? So their ears prick up. They, they start to listen. And then the last thing, which is something that probably throws them a little bit off, is Jesus ends with this really curious ending. He says, let anyone who has ears listen. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus, right? Like, let anyone who has ears listen. It's a very, very confusing statement to end a story with. Which leads into kind of the second story, the second part of our passage this morning, the purpose of parables. So um, Matthew uh, is part of this inner group of Jesus. He's one of these disciples. So he knows what's going on. And he records, he provides for us what happens on that boat. In verse 10, we see the start of the second section of Jesus explaining the purpose of the parables where his disciples come to Jesus with a question. The disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? And look at Jesus' reply. He answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Now imagine you're the disciples sitting next to Jesus in the boat. You just ask Jesus for clarity on why he's teaching in stories, and this is the reply that you get. I mean, if it's me, I'm like, okay, Jesus, um, I have literally no idea what you just said, right? I mean, I, I see your eyes, like you're squinting, you're like, I don't even understand what that means. Like, it's confusing. Like the secrets of the kingdom, what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? The have and the have-nots, people that look and don't see, people that listen but don't understand, what in the world is Jesus talking about? When we, we typically use stories, we're using stories to try to simplify a truth or to explain in simpler concepts something that is hard to understand. But it seems that Jesus is doing something completely different here in the way that he's trying to explain why he uses parables to his disciples. Rather than clarify truth with story, Jesus is using parables to conceal truth. Why would Jesus, as he has crowds that are coming, flocking to him, why, why would he respond by trying to conceal truth? Well, here's, here's why I think he's doing it. Because the crowds have not truly embraced Jesus for who he is. So to this point in Matthew, here's what the crowds have seen from Jesus. They've seen him heal a paralytic. Friends, literally bring a paralytic on a stretcher to this, ho this house that Jesus is in. Crowds are everywhere. I mean, they, it's standing room only. People are flooded out of the doors. And so these friends, they tear open the roof literally to get their friend to Jesus. And Jesus heals the paralytic and says that he forgives him of his sins. Then you see Jesus literally raise someone from the dead. A desperate dad comes to Jesus Ask Jesus to come heal his sick daughter, who we find out later is already dead. And as he's on the way, he's, he's surrounded by people. 
A woman come and touches his garments and is literally healed of this bleeding disorder that she's had for years. Physicians haven't been able to fix. And he senses the power leave him and ask who has touched him. And the, the disciples are like, how are we to know? There's way too many people. And this woman confesses and he says that she is now well. Then he gets to the home. He says that he, this girl is not, not dead. She's just sleeping. He goes into the inner room. The people laugh at the idea that she's not dead. Jesus goes in, has this moment with the girl, and she comes out walking, and the, the crowds are amazed. Jesus later encounters a man that was born blind and heals him. And it dispersed throughout all of this, the family members, loved ones, friends are bringing friends that are dealing with demonic spirits that have possessed them. And Jesus, through literally speaking by a word, casts these demons out and they're immediately healed. This is everything that the crowds have experienced and seen Jesus do up to this point. They've literally seen everything that they need in order to respond to who Jesus is. They've seen his healing power. They've seen his miracles. They, they've seen him work in ways that they've never experienced before. They've heard the message that they need to hear from Jesus, and that's that they are sick with sin and are in desperate need of someone to save them. But yet the crowds still are in disbelief and in understanding of what Jesus has done and what he is still doing. My wife and I have a, a friend from childhood um, who, as she was growing up, she claimed that she had a selective hearing disorder, right? So um, if you have kids, you probably feel this. It's like, yeah, okay, my kid has that. Like, I talk and they don't do what I ask them to do. So this, this friend of ours um, claimed that she had a selective hearing problem. Her parents would come and ask her to do something Later would come back to find that she had not done that thing and she would say that she just never heard them, right? And so uh, my, my wife was really good friends with this girl and so she knew that she was lying. <laughs> she claimed to have some hearing problem because she just didn't want to have to do what her parents asked her to do and so she would blame it, use it as an excuse to not to do. I mean, all parents are like, amen, I know exactly what that's like. That's exactly what my kids do to me, that's what my kids do to us as well. And I think that's something similar to what Jesus is experiencing here. This, this friend of ours, she knew exactly what her parents were saying. She knew the authority that they had over her life and still chose to ignore exactly what they had seen and heard in the life and ministry of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, looking they do not see and hearing they do not listen or understand. They have seen everything that they need to hear. They have seen everything that they need to see. And yet they still do not believe. And so Jesus conceals the truth because they have yet to embrace him or are unwilling to embrace him for who he claims himself to be. He says this of, the, of these people, these people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. What Jesus is saying is the crowds, they do have a hearing problem. And here's what he says about 
this hearing problem. There are two types of hearing. You have one type of hearing that you hear with the ears that are on the side of your head. And this is hearing that every single one of us have. Now, some of us, our ears may not work, but we have Braille. We have sign language. There is ways for any and every one of us to understand and to hear in our day and age. But that's not the type of hearing that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about a second type of hearing, which is the hearing that you do with your heart. You see, with the first type of hearing... It leads to rejection of Jesus. With that second type of hearing with your heart, it leads to the reception of Jesus. One leads, the first leads to life as it was before, but the second type of hearing leads to life where you receive the good news of Jesus. You turn from your former way of life, and he comes into your life, and he heals you. It's not enough to have the ears on the side of your head or your eyes in your sockets. Every single one of us has one of these. What we need are the spiritual ears or the heart ears that hear the words of Jesus, receive his message, and our lives are healed and changed. So this is Jesus' reasoning, his purpose for why he uses stories as he teaches to the crowds because they have yet to embrace him as the person and the holy God who he is. And since they haven't done it, they've had everything that they need to see and hear, he conceals the truth through stories. Then he moves to explain this parable to his disciples. And what I want to do is I just want to walk through each of these four different movements. There's four different types of hearing that Jesus works through in his explanation of the parable of the sower. I just want us to camp out in a little bit of each one of them because I think every single one of them has something to say to us this morning. So the first one you find in verses 18 through 19 says this. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. The first soil is a well-traveled path. The sower casts the seed on this ground and it just bounces off the surface because the dirt has become hard and compacted. These people hear the word, but their hearts are unreceptive, Jesus says, because they do not understand it, because they listen with a hard heart. We all know people like this, whether it's ourself or someone that we know. And these people are those that usually, they've heard the, the gospel, maybe even from an early and often stage in life, but the message of the gospel ne never truly seeps in. These people may be able to recite all the Sunday school answers that you could possibly throw at them. And even whenever they're pressed, they, whether they're a Christian or not, they may even claim to be a Christian. And if you ask them why, they may say that because Jesus has died for my sins. But whenever you look at their life, you recognize that there's never been any change. The way that they pe treat people has never changed. The, their speech has never changed. Their actions, the way that they live their lives has never changed. There's been no change from the gospel whatsoever. And it's because the generous, outrageous gift of God's love and grace in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has never been truly embraced in their life and they have yet to understand it. 
They can, they can give you the answers. They can claim the, thing, the right things. They can say the right words. But whenever you look at their life, there's been no life change whatsoever. And if that's you, where you have someone like this in your life, our tendency can be very quickly to jump, to, to really be angry with God because of it. You may have been praying for this person for years that God would soften their hearts, and there's blame that's going on deep inside of you towards God because he's yet to change their life. But Jesus gives us an alternate person to, to draw the blame on, and it's Satan himself. I mean, look at what Jesus says. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, and this is the one that is sown along the path. It's not God who is the one to be blamed. It's Satan himself. Our own hard hearts and our love for sin harden our hearts to the message of the gospel, but then it's Satan that swoops in and removes the gospel message from their life before the soil can change in order to receive it. It's not God to be blamed, but it's Satan himself. So that's the first type of listening. The path listens with a hard heart and the seed of the gospel never truly gets in. The second soil is the rocky soil. Find this in verses 20 through 21. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. This rocky soil is listening to Jesus or receiving the message of Jesus with a shallow heart. It seems a lot more promising than the first soil, right? At least there's an immediate response. There's a joy whenever the message of the gospel is heard, but the gospel hits them at an emotional level. level, And what we see is there's really no depth to what's going on in this person's life whatsoever. The reception of the gospel is short-lived because the faith was shallow and it dries out. When things get uncomfortable following Jesus, these people are quick to bail. When pressure starts to come, they quickly let it go. When snickering and mockery and ridicule start to come, these people hit the ejection button. Now, that there would be any type of persecution or suffering or hardship that comes to a person that follows Jesus should be no surprise to us. Jesus is very frank with his disciples and with us throughout the Gospel of Matthew that anybody that follows Jesus is going to have suffering and difficulty and hardship. Just before he sends out the 12 in chapter 10, Jesus tells them, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. So it's no surprise that hardship, suffering, persecution come when we follow Jesus. He never declares that it's going to be the easy life in following him, but what he does promise is that when you follow him, you are going to have the best life. Jesus tells his disciples elsewhere, I have come that you may have life, and what? That you have it abundantly. Jesus doesn't promise that whenever you come and you give your life to him and you follow him, that life is going to automatically become easy. No, rather he says it's going to remain hard, but it's still going to be the best life. 
Because here's the matter of the fact. Our Jesus is the one that who, who spoke this world into existence. He's the one that had you in mind before this world was created and even formed. He's the one that gives you your very breath for the very next moment for you to maintain life here on earth. If there's anybody that knows what the best life looks like to live in this world, it's the person that created this world to be lived, and he's the one that created your very life as well. So we should listen, we should adhere to what he has to say. And here's the good news for us, for anybody that truly comes to Jesus, that whenever you give your life to Jesus, he is doing everything in his work in order to make you more like his son. That means all the good and the bad in your life. He doesn't remove the bad, but what happens when you come to Jesus, he begins to take the bad, and he even uses the bad in order to make it for the good so that you may become more like Jesus. That's why he says, or that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that anybody that comes to Jesus, he's working all things for our good. But the person with the thorny soil... When the sun comes up and it starts to shine down on the seed in the, in the rocky soil, they're quick to hit the eject, ejection button. Um, so I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a youth pastor for about 15 years. Um, we moved to different churches. I was part of a lot of different youth groups. And then I also served on youth staff at a church during my years in college. So I've been around a lot of youth groups in um, for any teen or student that's here, like this is a really important warning for you. For anyone that has decided to follow Jesus, what I have seen is that there are a lot of joyful responses to the good news of Jesus on, sun, on uh, summer camps, fall retreats, Wednesday nights where places feel a lot of safe, uh, really safe and there's an excitement that's coming with this reception of the gospel. I've seen a lot of friends, I've seen a lot of students that have jumped immediately and had a joyful response to the good news of the gospel. But whenever they get back to school or when they get back with their sports teams or they get back to their normal crowds, they're quick to hit the ejection button because they don't like the way that they're left out of things that they were formerly a part of. They don't like the way that they're talked about behind their back. They don't like that Former close friends of theirs no longer want anything to do with them. They are quick to hit the ejection button. But if you are a student here that has decided to follow Jesus, you've trusted the gospel, here's what I'd like to say. Endure. Endure. Because being a 34-year-old now who's been in pastoral ministry for years, close to a decade now, and having other pastoral mentors that have spoken into my life, one thing that I hear constantly is that a pastor is never yet to hear where a person says, I regret following and trusting Jesus' commands in my life. So student endure. Cling fast to the good news of the gospel. Because I promise you, as you get older, you're not going to regret it. it tr it's not the easy life, but it is the best life. The third soil is the thorny soil. And we find that in verse 22. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So again, we see what feels like an immediate reception of the gospel, but things don't pan out. We know that the soil is somewhat receptive because it has 
Another plant there, the thorns. It's received the seed of the thorns. But whenever push comes to shove, when the worries of this age, when the, the seed of wealth get in, it chokes out the very word and the seed does not last. This soil is the one that listens to the words of Jesus with a divided heart. I think whenever Jesus is talking about the worries of this age, he's, he's talking about things that you and I feel all the time. For a lot of us, it may be our job. For some of us, it may be our kids. For some of us, it may be other things. But we have felt the worry, the anxiety, the concern that overcomes our life in these different spheres, haven't we? I mean, whenever it comes to your job, it may be the access that you are so wanting to the boss in your office or the important people in your office, or it may be the, the way that you've try, been trying so long to position yourself for that, that promotion that you've wanted for so long. I mean, all of your life is geared towards this, trying to position yourself, get yourself in the right position for you to, to really seize the moment whenever it comes your way. Your life is consumed with it. For some of us, it is our kids. Their schooling that they get. I mean, we've pulled them and moved them around to so many different schools in order to find the right place for them to get the right education so they're set up well for life. Or maybe their friend groups. The friend groups that they're in or the friend groups that they're not in. And we're really concerned about their status with the people that are at their schools or in their friend groups and where they stand. And we're constantly trying to help our, our kids position themselves to where they get in with the right crowds or we get in with the people that we like in order for them to be set up well for the rest of their schooling. And we get so consumed with the worries of this, with this age, with our job, our kids, or whatever else it might be in your own life. And it chokes out the seed. We feel the deceit of wealth in our life, don't we? Jesus warns of the threat of wealth when it comes to genuine belief. He says, truly I tell you, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason it's really hard is because wealth comes with promises. Promises of safety. Promises of comfort. And these are all things that every single person in this room wants, including myself. I want these things. And so it's tempting to go with this deception, this this draw of wealth in our own life. And I, I personally think like it's, it's a louder voice than many of us give credit. I think John Rockefeller has it right that he gives voice to this idea of wealth. He, when asked how much money is enough money, Rockefeller would say always just a little bit more. And since we can't have two masters, God and money, the pursuit of wealth, it chokes out the very word. Of God, And I think this is a really crucial warning for us, those of us that live in the suburbs. There's a promise that comes with living in the suburbs. And that promise breaks out a little bit like this, and then I'll give you the overarching promise. If you move into our neighborhoods, your family will be safe. If you buy more square footage, your kids won't get on each other's nerves anymore. <laughs> if you move out east, we have better schools. If you move out east, we have updated homes. Life will be more simple. And all of this can fall under the big promise that 
we in the suburbs, we can offer you the family and the life that you really want. The issue isn't so much the homes. The issue isn't so much the schools. The issue isn't the stuff. The issue is what our hearts attach themselves to. Because the lure of wealth is that it holds a big promise, but it never delivers, and it's always asking more of you. And ultimately, it chokes out the word. So Jesus is saying through this thorny soil, beware. Beware of the deception of the worries of this age and of wealth in your life because they cannot deliver on their promises. And then he moves to the good soil, the last soil. It says this in verse 23, the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does not produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. The good soil is the only soil that truly hears and understands the words of Jesus. And it's very, very brief in its description here, but we get a more robust understanding from a different gospel. Luke chapter 8, verse 15 says this, But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. So the good soil are those who listen to Jesus with an honest and good heart. The good soil hears and understands because it knows its need. It's honest about its need. It, the person recognizes the effect that sin has on themselves and the effect that sin has on the world around them, especially their own relationships. The good soil hears and understands because of a good and receptive heart. It knows its need. They've tried to deal with this sin issue with multiple other things, but nothing has worked. And then they hear the good news of the gospel, this Jesus that comes and says, I will do everything for you. I will lay down my life for you. I will deal with the very problem that you yourself could not deal with yourself so that you could be healed. And it's good and receptive because it's needy. It's tried the other things and it's realized that Jesus is the only thing that can really genuinely deal with their sin issue. We see the way that we can know that you're a good soil is by the, the fruit that your life produces. See, for a plant to produce fruit, it takes time, all right? So a lot of us, we may, we may have received the gospel. We may have genuinely given our life to Jesus, but if you're sitting in the seat, you may be really frustrated about the change and the development that's happened in your life. But what this, this parable is teaching us is that that change does not happen. We live in a very fast-paced culture where we expect immediate results. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus comes in, the seed takes root in your heart, but it takes time for that seed to sprout. It takes time for that seed to grow, and it takes time for that seed to produce fruit. But when it does, it's 30 to 60 to 100 times more in abundance than what was originally received at the first initial reception of the gospel. 
If you receive it, you can know with a matter of fact that God is completely for you. Because in order for you to have the good soil, for you to be the person that sees your sin and receive the good news of Jesus, he literally had to come down from his rightful place in heaven, climb the cross, and die in your place in order that you might have a new heart. So if you're discouraged at your progress, be of hope. There's nobody that should be more hopeful than us as Christians. So the soil of the path hears the word with a hard heart and does not receive the word at all. The rocky soil listens to the word with a shallow heart and it receives the word with joy at first but lets it go under pressure and suffering and persecution. The thorny soil listens to the word with a divided heart. The worries of this age and the deceit of wealth choke out the word and we devote ourselves to the lives of things other than the life of Jesus. But the good soil hears the word and it understands it. So the question for us is this, which soil are you? Which soil are you? My tendency is to put myself immediately in the good soil. And I, I'm not, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to where many of us in here would also put ourselves in the good soil as well. But here's, here's what a commentator says for the right way for this parable to work in our own life. The parable works as it was intended to work only when it is used self-critically. So I'll ask you again, which soil are you? Do you see hints and pieces from these other three soils that aren't the good soil? That maybe the seed of those very things is growing in your own heart and life? Can you relate to whenever people start snickering or ridiculing or mocking you because you're a follower of Jesus that you want to pull away? Is that you? Do you have the rocks in your life? That you receive it with joy, but you're quick to hit the ejection button, or at least it's really tempting. Do you love your sin so dearly that your hard heart is tough like a callus? The seed can't penetrate in? Are you like the thorny soil that you feel very divided? You're so concerned about your job. You're so concerned about your kids. Man, it's really hard to, to not buy into the promise of the burbs. You see the, the fruit? Do you see the roots in your own life? I think the, the call for Jesus for you this morning is that you are to be honest. To be really frankly honest about what's going on in your own heart and life. And the next step for you is to confess it. Confess it to God and confess it to other people because here's the gift of confession that you no longer have to hide. And what happens whenever you confess your sin to God and you confess your sin to other people is that, that stranglehold that it has on your life begins to be loosened. Because you're declaring whose side you're on. When you bring it up and you confess it and denounce it as wrong 
and turn away from it, you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and only he has the genuine grip on my life. But when you continue to walk in the ways of this world, can live, continue to live in the anxieties of our age, when you continue to fall into the deception of wealth, you're a divided soul at best. So be honest. Confess. Some of you, man, you, you feel just the hardness of your heart this morning, right? I mean, you feel just how little you want to do with Jesus. You know that he's the son of God. You know that he's died for your sins, but you just don't want to give him your life. You want to make your own choices. And you're at this place where I don't know what else to do. I have no idea. Well, what this parable is telling us is there's really nothing you can do. But here's the good news of the parable is that we know the generous farmer of this, this very parable. And this generous farmer will come into your life and he'll, he'll break up the dry ground in your life. He'll root out the rocks of the soil. He'll rake up the thorns from the soil of your own heart. And he'll deal with the things that you can't deal with yourself. That's the hope of this parable is that we can know the great and generous farmer. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. What is impossible with you is possible with God. All things are possible with our generous farmer who can come in and change your life. Because if you come to Christ, he not only will allow you to have a relationship with him, he'll give you a new heart. When I played sports in high school, I wasn't a very good um, athlete, but I played sports. So um, I was much like my childhood friend who had the selective hearing. So um, when I would play basketball um, or whenever I was running track, I did both of those. I, I just had this tendency to block everything out. I, would, I couldn't hear anybody that would be out in the stands or standing next to the track that would be yelling at us except for one voice. There was one voice that would always catch my attention. It was my dad's voice. And so if I'm playing basketball, I would hear my dad say, make him go left. And I, I would do it, and I would usually listen to him because he was typically right, and then what he would tell me to do would work. Or whenever I was running on the track and I was coming around the bend, and he would tell me, go, let it go! I, I would let it go, and I would get to the place where I needed to get in the race. I would make the advance that I needed to make. I, I, would, I had a receptive an open heart to my dad's voice because what he said was right and it was true. And whenever I acted on it, he never disappointed. Listen, be the good soil. Have an honest and good heart. Wrestle with the issues that are going on in your life. Wrestle with the sin that has root on your soul and deal with it. Because we have a God who is the generous farmer and he will come in and he will change your life. Let's pray.
Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.